Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from The Message. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing and how you can get involved, check out our website, message.org.uk. Um, next to the building where our Eden team planted a church, there's a scruffy piece of land. It's called the Peace Garden. It was created in 1986 to celebrate the International Year of Peace that I know you guys hold very dear in your hearts. And, um, and it's, a, it's a peace garden, but it's possibly one of the least peaceful places that I know. It's a... Uh, it's a very small, tiny bit of land. Uh, it's the, probably the worst community garden I've ever seen. It's surrounded by very ugly buildings. It's supposed to be fenced in, but the fences have been pulled down to provide a bit of a shortcut through for um, less than desirable people. It's, um, it's a place that I've done, I can't even tell you how many litter picks I've done, countless litter picks in order to try and keep it tidy, but it seems to be one of those little nooks that the wind brings everybody's litter, so you can clean it one day and find it utterly rancid the next. It's a total state, and it's right next to a busy road, and there's a, there's a, a bus stop that's right like in the middle of it, in a sense. And so, and also a set of traffic lights just past it. So as you're having your moment of peace in the Peace Garden, people will be waiting at the bus stop or in a queue of traffic, just looking at you like, weirdo. Like, why would you choose to sit here? You know, you're trying to have some contemplative time and it's just not good. It's like a goldfish bowl. I've had to break up fights in the Peace Garden. I've had to once stop some old people having sex in there while my youth club was on. I, I can't even describe what I witnessed that day. It is a mess. It's abused. But yet it's an incredibly special place for me. On one of the walls, um, there is a plaque that is uh, for one of my young people who passed away to remember him. His name was Cody O'Grady. He was taken from us when he was just 17 years old. He had an aggressive tumor that grew behind his eye and then surrounded his brain and took him from us. And as many, although we saw many miracles in his life and in his family, um, he lost his life. I'm confident I will see him again, but I go there to remember him. Sometimes I'll gather his family and friends there. We sort of um, often will share milk in the Peace Garden. Cody loved milk, and so we'll toast him with milk, and we'll tell stories that remember him. It's a very special place for me. It's my garden of peace. Jesus had a garden of peace too. Jesus had a special place, a proper place of peace. This is a place that Jesus would retreat to. You know, Jesus often retreated to the mountains, didn't he? To spend time with his father. But when he's in the city, he retreats to the Mount of Olives, to this special little garden that we know as the Garden of Gethsemane. And there's one particular night after he's done that special meal that we call the Lord's Supper, you know, the thing I was digging into last time. That evening where he stripped down to his undies and put a towel around his waist and began to wash the feet of his disciples, that special moment where he gave them the final instructions their last night together. It's almost like their graduation party. From here on in, there'll be planters, church planters. The early church is just days away. And Jesus leaves that mealtime 
that special moment, and then he heads out to his place of peace. Heads out to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Some believe by now it's past midnight. We're in Good Friday. Good Friday, as we know, it would have actually started around the same time as they had their evening meal, but now it's past midnight, and we know that Good Friday has arrived. Jesus has so little time left. Like we're talking hours now before he'll be nailed to a cross. Luke twenty-two thirty-nine. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. Jesus makes his way out of the city and the disciples all walk behind. I say all, all but one. All except one. See, Judas by now has departed. He didn't follow. He left following his own path. He knows where Jesus is headed, where Jesus likes to go and rest. He knows about the peace garden. He knows about Jesus' special place. And he knows Jesus will take his disciples there to spend the rest of the evening. It's late. Jesus will be isolated in a remote place. Now is the time to strike. And I'm confident that Jesus knew absolutely what Judas was going to do. He probably saw him leave the meal table. He saw him walk out the door and he knew at that moment he was making his way to the chief priests. And he would tell them the direction that Jesus would travel in. But yet Jesus heads to the same spot. I love it. He knows what's coming. And he'll follow through. I'm not sure how Jesus holds it together sometimes. These are his final hours and he knows what awaits him. He knows what's going to happen in just the next few minutes and the hours that will unfold and it's going to go crazy. It's going to be the maddest, most distressing, the most agonizing, the most painful moment and yet he continues on and Jesus knows what he needs. He needs to prepare himself in prayer. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, not because he just loves the garden. It's because he he meets his dad. It's the intimate place where he can talk to his father. And Luke 22, 40, it says, On reaching the place, he said to them, and that's his disciples, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. That's his one prayer request. As soon as they get to the place of peace, he knows that the place of solitude, the place of intimacy is going to be ruined and become the place of testing. Jesus knows it's going to be the place of temptation. And his words to his disciples are, Pray that you don't fall into temptation. There on the hills begins the most important prayer meeting in history. There is not another more important moment of prayer than this one. Pray you don't get tempted. Jesus knows that he is just about to face temptation and he's desperate that his followers, his disciples, his boys won't experience the same and turn back or turn away. Stay the course, hold on, it's going to be a wild ride. You know, remember in Luke chapter 4, right at the start of Jesus' ministry, after that amazing baptism moment, you know, Jesus goes down in the water as he comes up. The sky, we're told, is ripped apart, torn apart. And this, this dove of the Holy Spirit descends. And then the voice of the Heavenly Father is audibly heard by all in attendance. This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Remember that moment? 
And then it says after that that Jesus is led by the Spirit. Where? To the desert where he will face temptation. He faces that incredible temptation. Three times the devil goes at him. Each time he defeats him with scripture. As he counteracts the work of the devil with the truth about who God is. And at the end of that temptation passage it says this in Luke 4.13. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is now the opportune time. This is the moment that the devil has been waiting for. Jesus uh, eagerly anticipated the meal. The devil's been anticipating the garden. He wants to take Jesus out in the moments before the cross. Let's see if I can make him turn back, turn away, change his mind, convince him not to go to the cross. This is the devil's last chance. This is the devil's scheme to take him out. But what I love here, unfolding before our eyes, is this beautiful symmetry that we find in the word. Jesus' first temptation was in the desert. His final temptation is in the garden. And in this moment, he's undoing the work of Adam. Adam is tempted in the garden and then sent from the garden to the desert. Jesus is tempted in the desert to bring us back into the garden. And now in the garden... Jesus has got to face again the temptation of Adam. Face what Adam faced to break the curse over you and over me. This is massive. And I wonder if the disciples have any clue what is about to unfold. Any idea what they're about to witness. It says he withdrew a stone's throw beyond them. Knelt down and prayed. Jesus is just a short distance. I don't know how far you can throw a stone. It just means something close by. Jesus, I reckon, is in earshot. If he cries out, they'll hear him. If they look closely between the trees, maybe they'll spot Christ upon his knees. And Jesus prays. And the temptation, it isn't long and detracted like it is in the desert. It's short and it's simple and it's clear. Will Jesus go to the cross? And so Jesus begins to pray, Father, Father. And I wish I could hear him say it. I'd love to hear Christ talk to his dad as he says, Father. This is one heck of a prayer. I can't do it justice. It's so unbelievably powerful. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. If you're willing, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. This, I have to say, is one of the most controversial lines in the entire Bible. Some people hate it. Some people think that maybe they added it in later because they're so uncomfortable with what it might say about the Christ our King. For the first time and the only time ever, it looks like the will of the Father and the will of the Son are not aligned. That they somehow have a disagreement, that they're not on the same page, and it's just too scandalous for some people. But I think it's glorious. I think it's incredible. It's incredibly good news for us. Jesus has to be like us in every way, fully human. He's got to be able to sin. People hate that. 
He's got to be able to sin, but yet he's like us in every way, and yet he does not sin. He has to have the ability to disobey. He has to have the ability to think differently to his father. And in this moment, we see it displayed for us, and it's hard for us to come to terms with. Why would he feel differently to God? Well, this is the crux, the moment that the very epicenter of the gospel is about to unfurl. Here, the temptation is about taking a cup, a cup, just a cup. Father, if you take the cup away, people, by the way, have been taking cups from my office. We need to talk about that later on. <laughs> Lots of cups, cups gone missing. God, that was a really powerful moment. I've ruined it talking about cups. It's just a cup, right? Insignificant. They're disagreeing over a cup. And it makes me begin to wonder, what is the cup? Why would Jesus not want to take the cup? Could you take it away, Dad? Take away the cup. I don't want the cup anymore. Why would he be so distressed and in agony and pain that's going to follow because of a cup? It's just a cup, right? But the cup signifies something significant. Let me take you back again to Luke chapter 4. Jesus coming out of the wilderness temptation, heads to the temple courts. As he walks in, the person wants Jesus to do the reading. And so they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. Jesus opens the scroll to where it was last left off. He didn't sort of flick through to find the bit that he wanted. But it opens on what we call Isaiah 61. And he reads those words that we love more than almost anything. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for captives and release from darkness for the prisoners and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And if we're not careful, we think that's the full bit of passage. Jesus does something controversial. He doesn't read the rest of the verse. He stops halfway through, mid-sentence, mid-verse, and he leaves out something vital. He stops short. And the next line is incredible. It reads this. And the day of vengeance of our God. You missed a bit. Jesus, you missed a bit. Where's the vengeance of our God? The vengeance of our God is poured out into a cup. It's called the cup. Of wrath, the cup of wrath detailed in Isaiah 51. Jesus would have known the scripture, and the cup in dispute that he's been asked to take and, and, and take by the Father is full of his wrath. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't want it. Why would he want it? Why would he want to drink from the cup of the wrath of God? Jesus in his first sermon, reading from the scroll, makes no mention of it. Why would that be? Why would Jesus, as he stands in the, sits in the temple to share the scriptures, why would he forget the wrath of God? Well, it's because he intends to face it. Could it be that the day of vengeance of our God was only for him? 
Could it be that Jesus intended for us to never receive the day of vengeance because he intended for the vengeance of God to be poured out in a cup that he would face on our behalf so we would never need to put the cups, the cup to our lips. Christ will take the cup. He'll put it to his lips. He won't just sip it. He will finish it. The cup of the vengeance of our God will be drunk by Christ our Savior so that the wrath of God may be satisfied in him. But nothing would make Jesus more sorrowful than facing it. He holds in his hand the very vengeance of his Father. He's like, Dad, if there's another way, if there's an alternative, if we could find another route, I would take it. But not this, this to find displeasure in the eyes of his father for his dad. Ah, imagine the pain. Nothing would give him greater sorrow than being separated from his father, to be forsaken by his own dad, the worst of all pain. And you know, the moment that the cup goes to his lips, his heart would break. Is there another way? Can we find an alternative? Don't make me drink. Imagine the pain. But the humanity of Christ is so rich and so raw. This moment is about life and death. And I can't express to you the agony that Christ must have felt. Just moments earlier, Jesus has offered his disciples a cup at the table. He said, this is the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. But to get the cup full of the blood, he's got to face a cup full of vengeance. And he's like, oh, the agony. Don't make me do it, Dad. Do I have to drink? But in drinking, he rescues us. In drinking, he redeems us. In drinking, he makes his way to the cross where blood will be poured out. That a new covenant that ensures our connection to the Father is maintained. We need Christ to drink of the cup. But in that moment, do you see his humanity? Please don't make me do it. Ah, oh, the pain. We love that verse from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But in this moment, his humanity is there on display. The joy feels lost. The joy feels replaced with suffering and agony and anguish. But amidst the pain, Jesus prays a prayer that he taught his disciples. It's there as he talks to his father. Hallowed be your name. He then leaves the prayer with this. But not my will, but yours be done. Incredible, beautiful, wonderful, glorious Jesus says, Not my will, not what I want, but what you want. I'll do whatever it takes. Incredible Jesus. That's why we worship him. Because he's willing to take whatever he needed to do to honor do Adam. Adam in the garden denied God. He said, my will, not yours, be done. Jesus in the garden says, your will, not mine, be done. He takes the curse and kicks it full in the teeth. He's not having it. Yet not mine, but yours, be done. Your way, not my way. Your will, not my will. And all that is left now in the garden is that Jesus must approach the tree. 
Adam, for Adam, he approached the tree of good and evil. Adam, hoping to become like God. And in the process of his disobedience, allow sin to enter the world. Jesus, who is God, will be nailed to the tree, defeating death and restoring us to the Father. He'll take the curse and he'll flip it. This is the upside-down kingdom. This is the upside-down king who will ensure life through, uh, through one man, death, sin, enter the world but through Christ, but through Christ, all are restored and sin is defeated. In this moment of distress, Jesus submits to the will of his Father, and it's wonderful. And I love this little bit in, 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 in verse 43, and an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Wow, to be that angel. Wow, to get that memo Wow, to be selected on that mission. Imagine being picked for that job. Go on, angel. Go to my son. Give him strength in his darkest hour. Amidst the agony of temptation, the angel gets the call to strengthen Jesus. And I'd love to know how. What would it be for you? He arrives with some Tony's chocolate. A good pat on the back. It's not that. Surely the angel just turns up and says, your daddy loves you. Surely the angel just turns up and says, and he loves the lost. The father loves the lost. The father loves the lost. Maybe that's all the angel needed to do. Remember angels very purpose is good news. In his darkest hour, the angel just arrives with the greatest news ever. Dad loves the lost. And the joy of heaven is restored in his heart. The joy of the Lord, we're told, strengthens us. For the joy set before him, he'll now endure the cross. The heavenly angel appears and fills him with joy. What makes Jesus joyful? Your father loves the lost. It's going to be worth it. He loves the lost. But the battle and the agony continues to rage on in Jesus. He wrestles on, even though strengthened by joy, he wrestles on. Verse 44 says, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. You know, like he had strength, what the strength, the joy of the Lord strengthens him to pray more. Like even more dependent on God, he prays so earnestly that sweat like drops of blood were falling to the ground. There's something so distressing about the cup that Jesus in all agony and pain begins to break out in sweat that is blood. And this, they say, is this rare sort of um, medical condition called hematidrosis that Dr. Google tells me is a condition which, in which capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands begin to rupture, causing them to exude blood occurring under the conditions of extreme physical or emotional pain this is the worst of places what would cause such a stress what would make Jesus' sweat glands pop 
for blood to begin to trickle down. The first blood that's been released as he takes the cup. The first blood that comes doesn't come at the nails, doesn't come at the crown. It comes at the stress that Matthew tells us in his gospel. When he recalls the words of Christ, it says this, My soul was overwhelmed with pain. With so- sorry, my, my soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You know, we talk about, oh, I was worried to death. But Jesus isn't worried to death. He's sad to death. Like, you, you know the pain of loss if you've lost a loved one. You know the sadness that it causes to your heart, the heartbreak that you feel. Take that to the, to the worst possible place. That Christ faces the greatest grief that anybody could face. Deep grief, broken in sorrow. He's saying, I'm so sad that I could die. When Cody died, I, I, I remember such deep sorrow, so, like weeping and weeping. I remember taking the drugs that had, had sort of, he, he had all this kind of um, morphine that he was having through a syringe driver. And you have to return morphine so you don't sell it on the, uh, to people. And I didn't want to. And, and, it, and, and so I had to take it back to the chemist and I pushed it across the counter to this woman uh, who was behind the t- till. And I, I said, oh, these are the drugs of Cody O'Grady. And in there was a, a woman that I'd worked with who was a prostitute. And she found out that uh, in that moment that Cody had passed away and she began to scream at me. It can't be. It can't be. It can't be really in my face. And in that moment, having held it together through the funeral and all that we'd done, I just broke. Grief like I'd never experienced. I left, I left the um, chemist and outside the chemist is this red letterbox and I just wept and wept and wept and wept. I couldn't stop crying as my heart broke for what I'd experienced. But Christ, in this moment, faces a brokenness that none of us can ever understand. Is he sorrowful about the portrayal of Judas? Is he sorrowful about the trials to come? Is he sorrowful about being beaten up and spat upon? Is he sorrowful even about his death? Is he sorrowful about the excruciating suffering he'll face upon the cross? Is he sorrowful about the agony that is to come? It's none of them. Jesus is sorrowful about the cup. That will separate him from his father for our sake. He doesn't want to take it. Imagine the distress. And when he arose from prayer, he went back to his disciples and he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you might not fall into temptation. And Jesus has asked them to pray with him. They've been brought into the most intimate places. And, and Jesus is going to contend really for the salvation of the world. The most important prayer meeting of all time. And they're just so sad and broken that they've all curled up every one of them. Imagine all spooned neatly together. Huddling to keep themselves warm. They're just a little bit sad and so they've gone asleep. And he's like, are you joking? Lads, I needed you now. Like if there's ever a moment where I need you, this is it. Let's go again. Let's pray. Let's keep pushing and pushing and pushing. But Jesus 
finds them asleep. And as he's just talking to them about this and calling them to pray again and stay up with him, just at that point where he's halfway through what he's going to do with them next, suddenly it says in verse 47, while he's still speaking, mid-conversation a crowd came up and a man who was called Judas. Look at that. Suddenly Luke wants to just reassure that we know who it is. A man who is called Judas. It's your mate. Your mate who's betraying Christ. One of the twelve was leading them. He leads them to the place. Jesus will be here. Follow me. He approached Jesus and kissed him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying The son of man with a kiss. You notice how it takes just a moment. As Jesus takes the cup to his lips, it begins to do his work. Jesus is going to be arrested now. Freedom from here is lost. The will of the Father takes hold. And he's betrayed with the intimacy of a kiss. The Greek word there for kiss is phileo heard that one before it's where we get the greek word for another kind of love called philios warm affection intimate friendship characterized by tender heartfelt heartfelt consideration and kinship it's beautiful brotherly love jesus says to judas you betray me with love You betray me with a kiss. The intimacy of a brother. What love. When Jesus' followers saw what was going on, or what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them, called Peter, doesn't wait for the answer. He gets his sword out, and he's having a go. And I love that he has a go. And he struck the, I've just totally added to the Bible there, and struck the servant of the high priest cutting off his ear. Clearly a fisherman, an absolutely rubbish soldier. Like, I would be fuming. I'd be like, what are you doing? Hit him in the face. Like, oh, like break his head. Stab him in the heart. If you're going to do it, do it properly. He's like, oh, it's just a madness to take off an ear. I've offended someone. And they're walking out. <laughs> what is Peter doing? But Jesus is amazing. He says, he answered him, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. See, this is the upside down king. He's the one who restores and he's the one who heals. The very person who comes to, oh, not again, he's going now. Um, the, the, the one who's come to arrest him is healed and restored. Jesus, who is full of distress and anguish. Jesus, who is sweating drops of blood from his head. Jesus, who's just been betrayed by his friend with the kiss of a brother. Jesus, who stops halfway through and pauses the situation in order to stick on the ear of the one who's come for him. And I love it. You betrayed me with love. Let me show you what love looks like. And it's a fantastic moment. I wish that Luke named him. It's John that names him. He's called Malchus. Why did, the, why did John know the name of this God? He's got to be known to the early church. 
I'm convinced he's got to have got saved. You can't have your ear chopped off and have it stuck back on and not think that man probably is God. And when he saw him nailed upon a cross, I wonder if he might have been in the guard below going, that man is clearly God. He's got to have played a part in the early church. I reckon they took him round. Tell him your story, Malchus. Wow. It's a moment. And there'd be people having a good look round. Can you see a crease? Can you see how he stuck it back on? And it would be perfect. Perfect ear. Mm. Totally anti- uh, extra biblical again. You want to try and crucify him? You want to try and crucify him as a criminal? You want to try and crucify him as a blasphemer? Well, look at this moment. He's the one who sticks back on the ear of the one who comes for him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you come at me with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. In the darkness, in the darkness of this hour, they think they rule and reign and darkness has taken over their hearts so much so that they can't see before them. It's the light of the world, the one shining out as light for all humanity and in their darkness they are deceived. This is the darkest day in history. The darkest day has begun but it's great news for us. We call it Good Friday. Jesus has drunk the cup. Let's pray. We love you, Jesus. You are incredible. I can't wait to hear you tell this story, Lord. I'm sure I don't do it justice. One day, Lord, I'll get to sit with you and you'll be able to share with me your pain and your anguish. Lord, one day I want to see the cup that you drink from. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you that the will of the Father was chosen at your expense. We thank you, Lord, that you took the wrath of God for us. We thank you, Lord, that you took the cup and drank it all. We thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. I never have to face the wrath of God because you did that for me. We have so much to praise you for, so much to worship you for. Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support our work or even get involved with one of our teams. Thanks for listening.